This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by A.J. Jacobs. A.J. is the master of immersion journalism, and this is where he immerses himself into a project and then writes about it. He has immersed himself in the Bible, in family, and most recently, in gratitude. His book on gratitude, Thanks a Thousand, is pure A.J., gracious, kind, funny, interesting, and completely original. A.J., welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. And uh, what a lovely introduction. Thank you. That was uh, purely Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about your chosen passage and uh, why it's so meaningful to you. Yeah, I chose a passage. It's not strictly from the Torah. I hope that's okay. It's from the Tanakh, it's from the Bible. I actually uh, considered another one. So if we have time, maybe I can uh, give a plug to that one. But I, I went with Psalm 3518. And the passage is a very short part of the bigger psalm, but it says, I will give you thanks in great assembly. Among the throngs, I will praise you. And I uh, chose it because, as you mentioned, my latest book is about gratitude, and I'm kind of obsessed with gratitude. And I thought this was a nice, grateful passage about thanking. Although the rest of the psalm is about how much the writer hates his enemy and how God will help him smash his enemy. So the rest is a little bit more sharp-edged. So I just focused on the one passage about thanking. Well, if you had to identify the most important idea in Judaism, obviously it'd be a big question, but perhaps the answer, and of course there could be a debate, but there would probably be no more than three or four contestants, but right up there would be gratitude. I mean, the first thing that an observant Jew says in the morning is moda ani, which does not mean I am grateful. It means grateful am I, where we acknowledge the existence of gratitude even before we acknowledge the existence of ourselves. Yeah, I love that. And the, the word Judaism comes from Judah, which is the word for thanks, for gratitude. So it's right there in our name. I love all of the prayers of Thanksgiving that I'm not an observant Jew, but that observant Jews do say, I mean, there is a prayer of thanksgiving for everything. There's a prayer for of thanksgiving for when you see someone who is who is nearsighted. And I am nearsighted, so I'm glad that I inspire people to say that prayer. And there is a prayer of thanksgiving for gratitude about gratitude. It's very meta, grateful for gratitude. So I love that. That's awesome. I didn't know that. Fascinating. I'm grateful for gratitude. Yeah, that's brilliant. I agree. I mean, because it is, for me, I talk of it in the book, I am not by nature a grateful person. I say that we all have our two sides to our personality, the Larry David side and the Mr. Rogers side. And the Larry David side, of course, is the negative, pessimistic side. And the Mr. Rogers side is the hopeful, optimistic side. And uh, I was born, I think, with a very strong Larry David side. And this project, and why I love gratitude so much, is that it's a way to bulk up 
that Mr. Rogers side. Because I love watching Larry David. You know, I love the show. Hilarious. But the being in the Larry David mindset all the time, yeah, that's a terrible place to be. And one of the great insights from your book also deeply resonates with one of the most important Jewish teachings is that if you want to be a certain way, just act that way. And then before you know it, you'll become that way. Oh, yeah. I love that. And I didn't, when I first ran across this concept, I didn't realize how Jewish it was. But you're right. There's, I don't know if you call it a catchphrase, but there's a, a motto in Judaism, deed before creed, that if you act in a certain way, if you follow the mitzvot, then you will eventually start to change your mind. And change who you are. So if you say, like you said before, I'm not a naturally grateful person, the Jewish answer is, okay, great. Just start doing one grateful act every day. And then, and modern social science is born this act. If you start doing one act every day within about 10 weeks, you will become that kind of person. So if you say, I wish I was more grateful. So what would Freud say? Freud would say, well, plunge the depths of your childhood to figure out why you're not who you want to be. Judaism said, no, no, just act that way. And within 10 weeks, you'll become that. Whether you want to be grateful, you want to be happier, you want to remember people's names more, whatever you want to do, just do it today. Do a little more tomorrow, a little more the third day. Within 10 weeks, you'll be that person. It's actually not that hard. I have found it so powerful. I mean, there's a, I wish I'd come up with this phrase, but it was the founder of Habitat for Humanity. He said, uh, if it's easier to act your way into a new way of thinking than to think your way into a new way of acting. And I totally found that because my latest book was all about, as you say, forcing myself to be grateful. I thanked a thousand people who helped make my morning cup of coffee. So I'd wake up all grumpy, but I would force myself to write notes or call the, you know, I call the woman who made the pesticide who that kept the insects out of my coffee in the coffee bean warehouse. And it was weird and awkward. Uh, it was sort of an anti-prank phone call. But like you said, if I force myself to do it, eventually you feel your mind catches up. And as you say, it's like the basis of cognitive behavioral psychology. It's totally the basis of behavioral psychology. Now, one of the interesting things about it being the basis is that all the studies have shown that gratitude makes the giver of gratitude more happy. But studies don't say much about the recipients of gratitude because I guess it's hard to measure. How often have you received gratitude today? Hard to measure. Much easier to know how often have you given it. And the interesting thing is that all the studies of happiness in response to the great question, how do we become more happy? The answer is actually really simple and very clear. Just express gratitude more often. And that's exactly what you did. And you showed the world in your book, which is that you got a morning cup of coffee at Joe's Coffee, which is presumably on the Upper West Side near where we both live, right? Yeah, that's the one. And you went to Joe's and you said, I love this coffee. And you went into why you love the coffee, but no more or less than the next guy. And then you said, uh, how many people are there to thank for delivering me this reasonably priced cup of coffee? And you found a thousand there. And, but then as you pointed out, there are so many more, like you, you considered in the book, you're like, how do I thank Beyonce? Because um, maybe somebody in the process was listening to Beyonce and was inspired to do their job even better because of the inspiration provided by the music. Exactly. And I did reach out to Beyonce because I think the truck driver said that he, he used Beyonce songs. She did not respond, but I did get hundreds of other responses. And like you said, the idea is that we take hundreds of people for granted. And every day, everything in our lives is intertwined and interconnected, which again is a very Jewish idea. And like you said, I quoted that he's not Jewish. He's a Benedictine monk. And he said, uh, let me get this right. He said, happiness does not lead to gratitude. 
gratitude leads to happiness. So you start with the gratitude. And again, I, um, I wrote a piece for the foreword about Judaism and gratitude uh, because I grew up, as you know, a very cultural Jew. No bar mitzvah, no seders. Oh, you had no bar mitzvah? No. Well, you have to come over to our seder this year then. Do you go to seders now? Well, now I do. Yeah, yeah. But sure, I'm coming. Wonderful, wonderful. God willing, we'll do them in, in March 27th and 28th. We'd love to have you. Terrific. Yeah, exactly. But I grew up, you know, very cultured. So my Judaism was filtered through Woody Allen and Philip Roth, Albert Brooks. How about your grandfather? Your grandfather was one of the great men of 20th century New York. Well, that's nice of you to say. Thank you. People our age don't really uh, remember him, but... No, they wouldn't necessarily know the name Ted Keel, but um, he was the last surviving friend of my grandfather. I had forgotten that. But Ted Keel was a, a legend in the worlds of New York, labor and politics and economics and... Um, well, it was interesting. He was very involved in the civil rights movement. He was actually Martin Luther King's lawyer when Martin Luther King was being sued by the Alabama police. He is not religious there at all, but I suppose you could say, you know, his sense of justice, his, uh, you know, tikkun olam had some Jewish roots. Absolutely. As does gratitude. So why do you think that gratitude has such a profound and what's so interesting is immediate effect on the happiness of he or she who expresses gratitude? Well, I think that we're built, you know, we're wired by evolution to notice the negative. We have a negative bias which ask scientists and they'll say it's because when we were on the savannah, you needed to notice if you heard a rustling in the grass, you were better off presuming it was a snake or a tiger than the wind. And same thing with the new food. It's like, why do children like very few foods? Because evolution teaches them that the new food might be poisonous. Don't risk it. It has a, a reason that we are wired that way, but we don't live on the savannah and it now causes all sorts of cognitive distortions so that we are, you know, if I hear a hundred compliments and a single insult, what does my brain focus on? It focuses on the insult, which is a terrible way to live. So the gratitude is sort of the antidote. Gratitude teaches you like to focus on what is going right. And I actually, this is a strange specific example, but it happened last night. So I thought I would tell you, I wear these like AirPods from uh, Apple. And yesterday I dropped them twice. They fell out of my ear in the bathroom and they'd like bounced on the rim of the toilet twice and they did not go in. And then I was taking out the garbage and it went in the garbage. And my immediate thought was, ah, I have the worst luck. I cannot believe I have to reach into this garbage. And, and there was like a rotten banana in there. And then I was like, wait, what am I talking about? I just escaped two toilet-related disasters. And now I just have to reach into the garbage. Like, why am I focusing on the negative? So that's a bizarre example, I know. No, it's a terrific example. And, and you could go even further. You could say, Thank God I'm able to afford AirPods. Thank God Apple's able to make AirPods. Thank God there are devices to listen to with the AirPods. You know, the gratitude is endless. Once you get into it, it's endless and it's totally genuine. I love that. But that's what you showed us all. You showed us all just how far gratitude extends. And what you show with coffee, obviously you didn't pick coffee because it was distinctive. You picked coffee because it was not distinctive because you could do the same thing, the same thing with anything. Anything, you know, socks, a t-shirt, the pencil, a... 
I mean, imagine doing it with your house. I mean, that would almost be impossible. <laughs> that would be a lifetime. It's in, I mean, if you could afford to eat, it would be a good thing to do because you would be happy all the time. But how many people like you're sitting now in, in Watermelon and how many people would there be to thank for your house? Oh, yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, maybe infinite. Yeah, infinite. I mean, seven billion. Because all the systems that go into it, like it's a massively complex, every house is a massively complex thing. And what about our ancestors, you know, thanking the guy or woman who invented doorknobs? I'm looking at a doorknob right now. You know, we don't think about all that our ancestors have given us. And, you know, that's one of my big themes is that the good old days were not good. You know, the good old days were dangerous. They were smelly, you know. And as Jews, we were persecuted all the time. So nostalgia can be a dangerous thing. But acknowledging all the sacrifices, I think that's another key to happiness. That's another thing I think about all the time. Now, when you were doing the very Jewish and very biblical act of, as you said, the word Jew comes from Judah, because it says, uh, his, his mother says, now I will be grateful, even though she can't get what she wants. What she wants is love and attachment from her husband, who really loved her younger sister, Rachel. But she realizes by the force, she says, I'm going to be grateful anyway. I'm going to be grateful in the midst of my disappointment, as Rabbi Shai Held said. Hence, I'm going to name him Judah. Hence, we're named Jews because we're supposed to be grateful in disappointment and in the opposite disappointment. So that's what it means to be a Jew. So it is the most Jewish idea. When you started thanking literally everybody you could think of for your cup of coffee, how did it change the way you felt about the world? Yeah, as I said, I mean, I also did not realize early on how Jewish the idea was because as I was mentioning, you know, my Judaism was filtered through a very specific cultural. So how did you change when, when you would call some person in the coffee process and just thank them? I like the story about the lid in the book. You know, thank them for making the lid. Oh, yeah. Well, it changed me in, in many ways. Uh, as I mentioned, the calls were often very awkward because it's not something we're trained to do as humans. So I would call and I, I would say, you know, this... I know this sounds strange, but I'm trying to thank everyone who had even the smallest role in my cup of coffee. And the guy who made the ladder that the coffee shop uses was like, well, that is strange, but thank you. I don't get a lot of uh, positive feedback. I, I will say, just to be honest, you know, there were people who were like, what's going on? Is this a pyramid scheme? Are you trying to uh, sell me something? Right. It's not a scheme, but it is, it's a pyramid. Of, it is a pyramid. There you go. I love that. It is a pyramid. So yeah, there was that. And then I decided to thank the, not just the people who made the coffee, but the people who made the cup because I couldn't drink the coffee without the cup. And you couldn't have the cup without the lid. And yeah, so I went deep into coffee lids. And uh, it's a remark. One thing that I love is whatever, however small and strange the topic is, once you dive in, it's fascinating. So I talked to this guy who was a coffee lid designer and he's he was sort of a he was like the Elon Musk of coffee lids. He was very um, very innovative, and he had designed this coffee lid because he believes a lid can be terrible for your coffee because it blocks the aroma, which is so key. So he had designed this lid that had an extra big hole for the nose, and so you could really dig your nose in there and get the full aroma. And I loved it, and it made me realize all of these little masterpieces that are around. Yeah, like my desk lamp, it has a little switch that has the perfect indentation for my thumb. And someone had to think of that. Someone, yeah, you know, that just didn't happen. So that was one change to my psychology, just 
Noticing the little. Noticing. Interesting. The act of gratitude or the act of being grateful for so many things helped you notice more things to be grateful for, even things that had nothing to do with coffee. Absolutely. I mean, noticing is a prerequisite to gratitude. You can't have gratitude unless you notice. It helped me just in my life because if I'm bored, instead of getting grumpy, I try to look around and notice. So if I'm in line at that coffee shop, I remember I noticed that, look at that lamp. That lamp, it's got an interesting color blue that I don't see very often. And just, it's that mindfulness that people talk about that's kind of trendy, but it's true. If you're not mindful, one of the big discoveries was savoring, which is all related to noticing and and the psychologist, a great psychologist who you might want to have on your show, Scott Barry Kaufman, uh, he talks about how savoring is crucial to gratitude. And the key is taking a moment and slowing it down and stretching it out, slowing down time and letting all your cares slip away. And that can be literal savoring, like savoring a cup of coffee, but it can also just be savoring a moment. And slowing down is also another very Jewish concept because it's newness is so important in, in Judaism. That's why Pesach is really the Jewish New Year. And uh, we celebrate newness all the time. And one would think for an old tradition, shouldn't we celebrate things that have been around for a while? It's like, no, newness. And why? Because when our brains process new things, time slows. That explains to so some, so many people ask, well, why does time seem to go faster now that I'm older? And the answer is because you, you don't do as many new things. When you're young, everything you do is, is new. And when you're older, we become more routinized. So the Jewish answer is just constantly have new things. Don't be so routine. And you'll exactly what you were saying. You'll save your time because it'll feel like it's longer. Right. This reminds me of, uh, as, a, as you know, I'm not a, a Orthodox Jew, um, but I once interviewed an Orthodox Jewish woman for my book on the Bible. And she had a fascinating point because she talked about how during Shabbat, part of her tradition is to do things in a new way so that you notice them. So she talked about how she usually puts on her lipstick in a clockwise manner, but on Shabbat, she puts it on counterclockwise and how profound that was because it made her notice. And she's like, oh, this ritual of putting on my lipstick actually is a lovely little ritual. And uh, if I didn't, if she didn't change it up, then like you said, it would just be another blur in her life. Interesting. You know, at, at United Hatzalah in Israel, which I, uh, I chair, the question came up, a lot of the volunteers, by no means all of them, but a, a lot of them are Orthodox Jews. So the question came up, can they get a phone call on Shabbat or Yom Kippur to rush an emergency to save a life? The answer is, of course, you can always do anything you need to save a life. No question. But then the second question is, well, can you come back from the emergency in a car on Shabbat? And the answer was, Interesting. The first one's not interesting. It's just obvious. But the second one's interesting. But yes, you absolutely can drive back on Shabbat because if we don't allow you to drive back on Shabbat, then you might pause for a moment before you go and somebody might die in that pause. So yes, you can drive back on Shabbat. But when they drive back, they always do something different. So if they take the key in their right hand in the ignition on the right hand, normally they'll do it in the left hand. If they start with their, I don't know, foot on the gas, they'll start with their foot on the brake, you know, just to remind themselves that this is Shabbat and it's different, it's distinctive, and we have to separate this day from all other days, even in ways that are unconventional. Here we're out saving a life and we're in a car. We would never otherwise be in a car in Shabbat. It's okay, but we got to do something different. I love that. And I didn't know that. But it actually, it reminds me that that's one of my crusades in life is 
even without Shabbat, just trying to do things differently as often as possible to keep the brain flexible and keep you from getting into ruts. So even if it's something simple like changing my toothpaste, I just changed my toothpaste two weeks ago because I refuse to be pinned down to one. I am not monogamous in my toothpaste. What you did is in a little way, my example, you, you slowed down time because modern psychology is born this out. Our brains need more energy to process new things. And that's how we feel time. Right. I mean, I, on the other side, you do want some things routinized because it saves time and sufficient and it's productive. But other things, you want to mix it up as much as possible. You want to meet, meet new people. You want to do new things. You want to have new experiences. You want to go to new places. All, all the important things. Right. That is one of my great obsessions is uh, experimenting more with your life. So what's the next book on? The next book, and it does have a little Jewish crossover. It's about uh, puzzles and my love of puzzles of all kinds. So not just jigsaw, but crosswords and, and Rubik's and logic, but bigger puzzles like the coronavirus and how do we cross the cultural divide? So I have been immersing myself and it's been fascinating. And I've met these wonderful people who are obsessed with little things. You know, just yesterday I talked to the, uh, the guy who holds the world record for solving the Rubik's Cube with his feet. That is a, a very important. <laughs> uh, but the, one of the bigger points is, and I think this is actually kind of a Jewish idea. I think we can stretch and say that, is that now when I look at the world, I try to look at it more as a puzzle. So if I'm in a debate with someone, say I'm debating a Trump supporter because I'm you know, a full-on Democrat, uh, yeah, instead of getting angry and seeing it as a war of words, I try to see it as a puzzle. Like, what do we really disagree on? What and what can we do to bridge that gap? What evidence is there? And I think that, you know, let's Talmudic scholars are all about analyzing and asking questions. So I, I think there's a, a Jewish overlap there. Fascinating. Can't wait to read it. Now, I uh, just uh, getting back to gratitude for one moment because it's such a fascinating your book's such a fascinating book. It's a fascinating subject. What can listeners do to improve their lives through the lens of gratitude? Well, I encourage my friends to go on gratitude trails. You know, I spent six months and, and traveled the world. So obviously that's not uh, realistic for most people, but even just a little version of it, like, you know, sending a note to a, a designer of a logo that you love or just going on Facebook. Like if you have a product you like, go on Facebook and thank the people there. I got so much nice feedback from just from like writing notes on Facebook and this is not a reason to do it, but I got a lot of free stuff. You did? What'd you get? <laughs> Nothing. I don't think that was very useful. Uh, I, let's see. I thank, I thank the makers of the uh, garbage bags that they used, Glad garbage bags. And I got like, you know, a big box of Glad products like uh, garbage bags and containers. I mean, I think they knew I was a writer, so they thought maybe they'd get a plug, which they did. Influencer marketing. Oh, you know what? Another small thing is looking people in the eyes, even now, especially with masks, that's more important than ever. Because when I thank the barista, uh, she, she said, you know, she's a hard job. She's dealing with people pre-caffeination, which is a very dangerous mind state. And she said that the hardest part is people don't even treat her like a human being. They just treat her like a vending machine and hold out their credit card. They don't look up from their phone. So just taking those two seconds to look up from the phone. And as you say, it's good for you. It's good. 
you know, from a very selfish point of view, like it reminds you that you're human and you're having this contact with another human, which is so crucial to our happiness. So look up for two seconds. I, I tell you, you know, it's a small thing, but it, it has made my life so much better. I remember a, a couple of years ago, just seeing in the news that uh, a beloved teacher of mine from high school had passed away. And uh, I just said, you know, I never in my whole adult life, I never reached out to him and thanked him. So did that inspire you to thank to reach out to anyone else? Yeah, it, it did. Actually, it did. I did that with, with a few of my teachers. And, and it was uh, but I just felt terrible. It's like he, he had such a profound influence and gave himself in so many ways to me when I was 16 or 17. And and I think I saw him once when I was in college and or and then maybe a year after or something. But that was how easy is how it's so easy, particularly now to find people and to communicate with them. And to, it's just so and to say thank you. And well, that is one of the most profound things during this. I, I did. And I reached out to a, an editor at a tiny newspaper I worked at right after college and told him how much he meant to me. And yeah, like you say, why wait until someone's funeral to say something nice about them? You know, that seems such a waste. That's exactly right. That's so profound. Why wait to someone's funeral or, or to send a letter to their uh, surviving child, spouse, whatever? It's like, that's nice, but you could have thanked him or her. And yeah. And, and as you said, the people you thanked, you didn't even know, just made their day. Imagine if with someone you, you know, and it's actually like, thank you for investing in me. I mean, if people feel so nice when you say, thank you for your role in the garbage bags, you know, they feel good with that. Imagine how they would feel if you say, thank you for what you did for me 30 years ago. Oh yeah. No, it is amazing. And actually as part of marketing this book, I, I announced on Facebook that I would write a thousand handwritten thank you notes to readers. And uh, they just had to fill out this internet form. And it was First of all, it was a huge pain in my ass. I did not realize a thousand letters is like... Did you personalize them? Yeah. But the, when they wrote their notes about like what they wanted me to say, you know, a lot of them talked about how my books had meaning to them and how it changed their lives or whatever. And oh my God, that was so emotional and, and wonderful. What a, a magnificent exercise. Yeah. You know what's embarrassing? I'm on like 962. Like I still have... 38 left to do. And I, I'm going to do it. How long does it take you to do each one? Well, I try to spend like, you know, five, 10 minutes because I want to personalize them and say something unique, like we were saying, which is hard, like a thousand unique things. That's hard to say. So there's a little overlap in, in all of them, but it's a, a wonderful exercise. As I say, a huge pain in the butt, but, uh, but also wonderful. No, it's a great idea. So the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says in the book, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said he saved a lot of Jews, then he became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So um, AJ, in all your years as an immersion journalist, since you wrote a book in 1994 about someone I love, the king, Elvis. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very grateful for even remembering that. Oh, I know you have a, an Elvis bust in your house, right? Now I have two Elvis statues in the house, and uh, we took the kids on a pilgrimage to Graceland last year. God willing, we'll do it again next year. Um, we love the king. This is an aside, but uh, the um, last guest on The Rabbi's Husband was Pat Boone, who was Elvis's friend and contemporary. I did not know. I'm going to have to listen to that episode. Oh, yeah. He was terrific. Just wonderful experience talking to him and, and learning from him. So you've been an immersion journalist since 1994. It's a long time. You've immersed yourself in a lot of different experiences and have done it so completely with such beautiful results. So 
what are two things in this process that you've learned about humankind? Well, we've talked about a couple of them. One is how powerful it is to act as if you, if you act as if long enough, you will eventually become that better person that you're pretending to be. And as we mentioned, gratitude is so important. Let's see, what are some other big lessons? I would say the idea of connectedness is one of the biggest. And it's in every everything I do. Like the gratitude project was all about connectedness, but I had another one right before that. On your family tree. Yeah, exactly. I got an email out of the blue from this guy in Israel who said, I'm your 12th cousin. And I thought it was a scam. I thought he was going to ask me to wire $10,000 to Nigeria. I think every Jew is our 12th cousin. Well, that's it. It turns out, yes. At least 12th cousin and probably a lot closer. Yeah, I think the, I mean, it depends on which geneticist you're talking to, but the average is probably about seventh cousin. If you're marrying another Ashkenazi Jew, you're marrying your seventh cousin thereabouts. So this guy called you from Israel, emails you and says, I'm your 12th cousin. So yeah, and I was, you know, skeptical, but then I looked into it and he's one of this group of people, the researchers and scientists who are trying to build a family tree of everyone on earth. It's just a remarkable moonshot where we can link every human being on earth by blood or by marriage using DNA, using the internet. And right now it's at almost 200 million people. So it's not at 7 billion yet. And you had a family reunion with 3,700 people. I did. I did. And it was it was incredibly stressful for me, but it was, in retrospect, it was lovely. We had Sister Sledge singing We Are Family, and uh, it was uh, just a bizarre, we had... Did anybody make lasting connections? Yeah. I mean, I had people who still email me that, you know, that they met people and had a profound time and, and they, there was a lot of hugging. I'm not a hugger, especially now, but uh, even then, but there's a lot of hugging. People are just hugging each other. is like literally their long lost cousin. Right. Cause it would be fun. You know, they would say, Oh, I'm, Hey cousin. And we had a group of genealogists trying to figure out how you were related. So you could go up there and say, you know, bring a friend and say, how are we related? And sometimes they would actually be able to track it down. And you, you found Barack Obama's your cousin. He is my fifth great aunt's husband's brother's wife's seventh great nephew. So that we're very close. Yeah. What is a fifth great aunt? A fifth great aunt would be, well, your great aunt is your grandmother's sister. So this is your great, 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 great grandmother's sister. Wow. Well, AJ, thank you for, as always, such a fascinating discussion. Well, I loved it. Thank you, Mark. I'm filled with gratitude, of course, uh, to you and to your microphone and to, uh, <laughs> to the people who made your shirt. And yeah, it was a delight. And congrats on the podcast. I'm going to go listen to Pat Boone. Yeah, it should be up in about two weeks. So uh, thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.